This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In the morning, I receive calls from friends and colleagues. There was no remorse. Uh, there was no any tension situation that might be a hint uh, or a reason or a justification for a coup. So everybody was, was surprised. Kiari Liman Tinguiri is, or was, depending on who you ask, Niger's ambassador to the United States. One month ago, his country's democratically elected president, Mohamed Bazoum, was deposed in a coup d'etat. Soon after, coup leaders themselves called Ambassador Tinguiri. They wanted him to join Niger's new military government. They tried to impress me. They called me to, to join them. I'm genuinely democrat. I believe in election. I believe in the rule of the law. I believe in the will of the people. I will never serve a military regime. That's very clear. So coup leaders swiftly proclaimed that they'd stripped him of his ambassador's post. Tinguiri rejects that for one simple reason. An ambassador is accredited by a recognized government to another recognized government. So as long as the United States has not recognized the junta, the junta has no legitimacy, not legal power, either to fire an ambassador or to appoint another one. I talk with the U.S. government, and I'm aware that they are doing whatever they can to free President Mohamed Bazoum and his family and to restore legitimate constitutional order in Niger. Niger is a huge country in the sub-Saharan region known as the Sahel. Following the July 26 coup, Niger became the latest country in the Sahel to fall under military rule. That list includes Mali, Burkina Faso, Chad, and Sudan. And the Sahel has been plagued by jihadi terrorists for years. However, prior to the coup, and with the help of the U.S. and French counterterrorism forces, Niger was making progress towards peace and democracy. One of the reasons why the July 26 coup caught many in the Sahel and in the West by surprise? Again, Ambassador Liman Tinguiri. What is looming is a disaster for Niger. That's what came in my mind, sadness. Sadness, sadness. Sadness because there is no reason whatsoever. We were doing well on the security, doing better than any of our neighbors. We have been doing in the last six months better in security than ever before in the last 15 years. So security situation was improving. The military men who now run the government say they are perfectly capable of dealing with terrorist groups. Tinguiri doesn't believe them. The junta will protect itself in the capital and leave the country side to the jihadists. These jihadists will rule the population. They impose illegal tax. They impose their law. And soon you will have jihadists controlling the whole west of Africa, from the Mediterranean Sea to the Atlantic. And if that is done, then it will be the sanctuary for them to destabilize the world. Don't forget, this area represents six times the size of Afghanistan. And by distance, it's more closer than all European and American capital than is Kabul. So it's us, it's the region, it's the world. That's exactly what will happen if, unfortunately, the coup succeeded. 
Kiaili Montinguiri, officially Niger's ambassador to Washington. Well, it has been a month since Niger's President Mohamed Bazoum was deposed. The impact of the coup on Niger, on regional development and security, and on the West is now easier to see. There still remains a fragile window to restore stability to Niger. But as that window shrinks, it calls into question the culpability of European and American actions or the lack of actions in the Sahel. As one U.S. defense official is quoted as saying, quote, the entire national defense strategy for the United States includes exactly one paragraph about Africa. That tells you how much we prioritize the continent, end quote. Joseph Sani is vice president of the Africa Center at the U.S. Institute of Peace. He has led peacebuilding and civil society missions in more than 20 African nations. He's also author of Reintegration of Ex-Combatants, A Balancing Acts, The Dilemmas of Reintegration in Liberia and Sierra Leone. Joseph Sani, welcome to On Point. Thank you for having me, Megna. So... Now that we do have a month since uh, that fateful day in July, uh, in, in late July, do you or other Africa analysts have a better sense as to what exactly precipitated the coup? Because as you heard the ambassador say, it caught so many by surprise. Do we better understand now why it happened? I think it's, it's still not clear, but uh, some argue that there were some internal disputes uh, because uh, General Tiani, it seems, uh, was supposed to lose his, po- his position. But however, what's happening overall, we know that when leaders, democratically elected leaders, um, focus more on security elements, I'm not saying that's the case, but more on security elements or aspect, and do not pay the same level of attention to democratic defense and institutions and also are not able to respond to citizen needs they make themselves vulnerable to this type of situation mm. and that's the overall trend mm. we have seen now when you mentioned uh, general tiani this is the the man who ne- who led the coup and now is the self-declared leader of niger Correct. Yes. Okay, we're going to come back to him in a moment. But when you said when leaders do not uh, place uh, adequate focus and support on democratic institutions, uh, on the needs of the people, that provides a, an opening for uh, a coup, for coups or attempted coups. But my understanding was that this is one of the reasons why people, again, were, were surprised by what happened in Niger, because unlike Mali or, or Chad or, or, or Sudan or Burkina Faso, that strip in the Sahel that has fallen to military rule, Niger was on a path uh, towards democratic progress and stability. Correct. Uh, that's that's why Niger coup is a little bit, it's an outlier and a shocking one and a dangerous one as well. Because as you said, and what the ambassador said is correct, Niger was on that path. Uh, President Bazoum was democratically elected. He was doing the right things. It may have not been enough, but he was on the right path. It was the right momentum. And so the junta, 
really ha- it's a betrayal, not only what they have done. This coup d'etat is a betrayal to the Nigerian people themselves. And it's a, it's a betrayal to the democratic uh, aspirations of the Nigerian and the, uh, and, and the region. I mean, you are, it's true. It's true that Bazou was doing the right thing. And that's why we, everyone was caught off guard on this one. Okay, so coming back then to uh, General Abdal Rahman Tishani, it sounds like you said that his motivation to overthrow the democratically elected government of Niger may have been informed in part by his own self-interest? Yes, uh, because there are no political or security reasons to the coup. And it seems it started as a personal dispute or a disagreement over decisions made by the president, personal decisions. So so it's, it's really important to emphasize how different mm-hmm. the differences between the coup in Niger and the coup, let's say, in Burkina or Mali, for that matter, or Guinea. There, there were some uh, violations or some lack of real tangible perf- results. But in Niger, Chani could not, even in the, in the opening speech, could not articulate clearly and convincingly why the coup. Hmm. Hmm. However, as you said earlier, and I would even say as we've seen recently here in the United States, there, have to be, there has to be a weakening of the democratic institutions of a government, right? Or, yes. or a weakening of the, uh, the fealty of members of the military who participate uh, in, in a coup. Both those things had to exist in order for Tishani to be successful. Correct. I think, yes. Uh, in the case of Niger, both things existed, uh, even though they were progress, however. But uh, what we are noticing is a general trend in the region, uh, and that's my biggest fear, is that leaders will then become very suspicious of the military, and Instead of developing the democratic defenses that exist, so for example, strengthening uh, parliament, uh, making sure that the civic space is robust enough, political party can exercise their activities, I'm afraid they will create a system of suspicions, surveillance, and checking on the military. That will be the wrong response. Because those things, by doing so, they really weaken the only defenses they have against any illegal takeover uh, takeover or a coup, Mm. the democratic defenses. Okay. Um, We have to take a break in just one minute. And I want to talk a little bit more about what's been happening just in the last few days uh, in Niger. But before we do that, Mr. Sani, just tell us for a, a quick 30 seconds more about... Uh, General Tishani, because my understanding was prior to July 26, he was hardly known uh, outside of Niger and definitely not a major figure in the eyes of the West. Yes, Tishani is a long-term uh, soldier. I mean, he has led uh, aspect different corps of the military, uh, mil- the Nigerian military uh, forces. So he was, he was. At the core, it's, it's a key part of the military, uh, the, the uh, Nigerian Defense Forces for a long time. He worked under the former president, uh, Mohamed Isufu, and then for 10 years, and worked again, uh, 
with Bazoum. So it's a well-known entity in Niger. Mm. It's a well-known entity by the military force. Now, does it command the support of the entire military? That's a question. It's an open question. Not so sure. We'll be back in one moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash OnPoint. That's Indeed.com slash OnPoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today our exploration begins with a focus on Niger, one month after the surprising military coup there. And then we're broadening it out to the Sahel region in Africa more more generally and the massive changes that have happened there over the past several years, specifically with uh, the integrity of national governments the rise of jihadist violence, and how both of those things redound not just upon the people of the Sahel, but globally. I'm joined today by Joseph Sani. He's vice president of the Africa Center at the U.S. Institute of Peace. He also writes the blog African Praxis. And in a moment, we will uh, get the view from, um, from, from the West as well. But Joseph Sani, I want to just pick up a little bit more on the specifics of what happened on July 26, and then the recent events that have taken place there. You know, we, we talked about uh, General Tishani, who's now the self-proclaimed leader of Niger. Why didn't other members of the military stop the coup? That's a very, it's a, it's a great question, Megan. Uh, the, the reality is that the first hours of coup, I will suspect there were some confusion and negotiation behind closed door to, because not all bodies of uh, of the military were on board in the first hour. But you know, there is some sort of esprit de corps and uh, probably they managed to bring at least the leadership of other aspects of other bodies of the military together and probably had uh, some promises were made, deals were made. But again, I'm, I, I'm not sure that the entire military is still on board. I think the junta is still trying to consolidate its power. And that's why the diplomatic pressure and the threat of military intervention is credible and may, may uh, help uh, see this through. Okay, so, so that brings us to sort of the most recent developments uh, in the Sahel and uh, West Africa more generally, because ECOWAS, the Economic Community of West African States, has said the coup in Niger must be reversed, right, to halt what they're calling the spiral of coups in the region. And um, in response to that language or the threat of military 
intervention uh, in Niger. General Tishani just recently, in the past several days, ordered the Nigerian armed forces to go on maximum alert and, in fact, also asked the military leadership in Mali and Burkina Faso to send troops to help defend them. So this is troubling for for many reasons, including the fact that, interestingly, Tishani himself has experience um, as a as a military leader in ECOWAS, right? He he yes. was deployed to the to Ivory Coast. He's also um, helped in campaigns against militant Islamic uh, Islamist groups in Boko Haram. He's in fact been in U.S. peacekeeping operations um, in both Ivory Coast and Sudan and uh, and Congo. So, how do you read these these latest developments? Uh, it's posture. I mean, uh, as you mentioned, General Chani uh, is a familiar for is knows the system, knows the multilateral system. Something is he was part of, and so. But in this case, he has no choice but to rally the troop, correct, and then to build some alliances. Again, but let me be clear: the military option should be the last option. Mm-hmm. However, there is no credible diplomatic. Uh, solution or option without that threat. So it's important, even though we don't want to get there. I mean, we should not. Um, but there is, diplomacy still has a chance. And I think it's important, first of all, to make sure that whatever the deal, whatever negotiation, to make sure that President, President Bazoum is safe um, and his family as well as well as the members of his government that are still uh, under house arrest or illegally detained or taken hostage. But um, General Chani has to do what he has to do uh, Mm. in the face of this military pressure. Well, before we get a view from uh, an American analyst here, I want to ask you about something that um, the ambassador said earlier in the show. He he said, he he essentially looked at... uh, Niger, his home country, as a bulwark against the takeover of uh, the whole of West Africa, he said, by militant uh, jihadists, because destabilized nations um, are entrees for the expansion of uh, militant jihadi uh, uh, rule. And he said, if the takeover of all of West Africa from the Mediterranean Sea to the Atlantic happens, then he says... West Africa will become a sanctuary for jihadis to destabilize the world. Is that indeed the scope of the danger we are looking at? There is, let me say, there is, it is dangerous to let this fly. I think Niger is the bulwark, I agree. Uh, and the, the threat is real. Uh, you know, the, the, the jihadis do not need to take over the entire region. But just by them controlling one or two countries, they are threatening everybody's interest, including the United States' interest. I mean, they may just attack our embassies, our interests in the region. So that's enough to uh, keep and motivate the United States and the rest of the world to act. Mm. And then remember, uh, the Sahel is the is the European backdoor. So uh, by controlling the Sahel, the 
the Europe, our allies in Europe are not safe either. Mm. Well, a little bit later, we will talk about the uh, both historical and contemporary role that France plays yes. in this story of the Sahel. But Joseph Asani, stand by for just a moment here, because I want to now bring Sarah Harrison into the conversation. She's joining us from Austin, Texas. She's a senior analyst at the International Crisis Group and was former associate general counsel in the Defense Department, focusing on African affairs. Sarah Harrison, welcome. Thank you. So I first want to just get a little sense as to, again, why, from the U.S. perspective, Washington was so surprised by what happened last month in Niger. Because from my understanding, uh, the United States has a fairly strong military partnership with the Nigerian military. There's been an increase in U.S. support for the Nigerian military, more than $500 million in security assistance in the past decade, roughly. So that that implies a close-ish relationship. So why was Washington also surprised by the rapid um, fall of the democratically elected government of Niger? Yeah, I think it depends actually on who you talk to. I've talked to some U.S. officials uh, close to the matter who said that it wasn't actually a surprise to some of the people who work the file, um, but more of a surprise to people at the highest levels, officials at the highest level uh, levels of the U.S. government. Um, and specifically for the reasons you've already discussed with Dr. Sani, is that Niger has uh, been seen by the West as a democratic, strong democratic security partner in the region, um, even if that doesn't necessarily uh, reflect the lives of the people in Niger, um, the U.S. saw it as, as, a, as a very stable country to work with and has invested hundreds of millions of dollars, not just in security assistance, but in development assistance, um, humanitarian aid. Uh, the U.S. has sent hundreds of millions of dollars in, in generally in foreign assistance uh, over the last decade and, and really invested in that security partnership with the military. So I think that for those who were shocked, it was because they thought they had, you know, AFRICOM and the Pentagon and the State Department all thought they had a very strong security partnership uh, with the military. But as you described, you know, the, the coup was led by the Presidential Guard, and that's not that's not the the component of the uh, security force that the U.S. government works closely with. It's it's other security forces um, in Niger, and so. Um, they don't have the relationship with uh, Tiani the way that they do with uh, the new chief of defense under the junta, General um, Barmu. So they have a close relationship with, let me just repeat that so I'm sure I understood it correctly. Yeah, sure. The, the, the United States has a closer relationship with one of the key members of the of the coup? Yeah, actually, uh, so the um, the acting deputy secretary of state was asked by Secretary Blinken to fly Tiniame to talk to uh, the junta and ask them to to consider reversing this coup. And um, she is Victoria Newland, and she tried to meet with uh, President Bazoum, but was denied a meeting with him. But met for over two hours with uh, General Barmu, who has been trained by the U.S. military, has a master's degree from the U.S., um, knows the amount that uh, that the you know knows the massive investment the U.S. has made in the Nigerian military. And she said she had a really the her readout was that she had a really difficult conversation with him, um, and. Uh, you know, the, the message was, we're not going to reverse this coup. And and after that meeting, the general told the Wall Street Journal that, um, you know, if all of this U.S. assistance is going to be taken away and that's the cost of our sovereignty, then then let it be. 
um, which I think was a, a real slap in the face to the U.S., uh, considering its its uh, history of in, investing in Niger, um, not only in the security assistance and uh, training and equipment it provides to the military, but it, it built a over $100 million base um, in Agadaz, which is uh, northeast of, of the capital. Yeah, so that base is actually an, an interesting character, if I can say, in this challenging story right now. I'm going to come back to it, but Joseph Sani... I think what Sarah said has been is really, really interesting because we're talking about vast sums of money of U.S. investment in Niger, but it, most of it sounds like it's in the, within the realm of security rather than an equally large uh, or larger investment in democratic development or economic development. First of all, check me on that. And second of all, if that is indeed the case, perhaps that may be one of the reasons why there was this inherent, if uh, unrecognized, democratic weakness in in Niger. Because as you were saying earlier, the democratic institutions that are required to stay strong to maintain a a country's integrity weren't as strong as they could be. Yes, I think, I mean, uh, we have said it before, people have written, and then even uh, the U.S. government recognizes this, the, a securitarized approach will not be sufficient to address the problems in the Sahel. So as we invest on security, it's so critically important to invest on those civilian and democratic institutions that will, if you will, immunize or build the resilience of democracy in those regions. Without that approach, it will be very difficult, I think. And that's why I think Congress passed the Global Fragility Act as a way to begin to address this kind of, that those deficiencies in investment on non-securitarized approaches. Mm, okay. So let's zoom out here for a little bit with, with both of you. And again, we're, we're not just focusing exclusively on Niger, but Niger is the latest and um, most surprising, I should say, uh, nation to have in, uh, undergo a coup in in the Sahel. And I want to step back a little bit and get a better understanding of why there's been this rather rapid um, spread of, of juntas or, or coups in that half dozen countries or so I mentioned earlier. And I'm reading that one of the triggers for that regional destabilization, and Joseph, I'm going to start with you on this, is the collapse of the Gaddafi regime in Libya back in 2011. What do you think about that? There is that aspect. I mean, the collapse of the Gaddafi regime was like breaking down a levy, a critical levy. And so uh, Gaddafi was very good at keeping those different groups, smugglers, uh, violent extremist terrorist organizations at bay. Once uh, that levy uh, went off, all hell went loose. But the, but that's just one aspect, frankly, mm. because the underlying question, the underlying problems are also governance. Mm-hmm. We had, yes, democratically elected regimes, but corrupt. We have inefficient governance. We have spaces that were ungoverned, literally. And the, those Previous regimes, as I discussed earlier, spend their time on the strategy of strengthening their power, mm. their handle over power, than governance. And so what happened, they rely on their military to protect them rather than democratic institutions. I see. 
Okay. Well, one of the outcomes of this, though, is that there has been a sharp, sharp rise in jihadi activity in the Sahel, particularly in the last sort of half dozen years. I'm seeing estimates that say that in 2016, fatalities from jihadi groups in the Sahel at large was a tiny number, maybe a little bit more than 200. By 2022, it rose to almost 8,000 people uh, being killed by jihadi activity in the region. That's an increase of, what, 3,000 percent in just a half dozen years? Sarah, how do you read that? Yeah, that's right. That's actually a statistic I brought with me. Um, If you look over the last decade across the continent, um, violence from jihadi groups has grown um, enormously. And 95 percent of that violence is happening in the Sahel and Somalia, uh, another conflict zone where the U.S. is involved. Um, And uh, in the Sahel, fatalities have grown immensely. And I I agree with Dr. Sani, a lot of this is underlying um, governance issues. But I also think that some of the security responses are responsible for the increase in violence. So if you look at Mali and Burkina Faso, the neighbors of Niger versus Niger, which we've described as, you know, more stable uh, than its neighbors, uh, you've seen these uh, the the violence grow in these countries, uh, despite the increase in security assistance from the West uh, prior to the coups, um, and the security assistance now from Wagner in Mali, which seems to actually be uh, increasing violence there um, and exacerbating the conflict. Um, and this is because of uh, grievances uh, that are driven by um, human rights violations, either by security forces in Burkina Faso or Mali, um, or human rights abuses uh, from Wagner or mm. the civilian militias that are being armed in Burkina Faso. And that that uh, leads to a, a, a continuation of, of violence when there are, are grievances against the government for those types of abuses, uh, because then they would, you know, potentially join uh, these groups that are um, metastasizing in these countries and threatening the littoral states, which are just south of the mm-hmm. Sahel. In Niger, President Bazoum actually had a very interesting approach to the conflict because he was disarming civilian militias um, and, and not... Um, uh, uh, allowing for civilian militias that were, you know, don't have a lot of oversight and um, um, training on compliance with the law. And then he also had a good uh, relationship with what's called the periphery or just, you know, rural areas outside of the capital. He had strong relationships, which helps with building security um, and, and governance. And But also he was uh, very supportive of dialogue programs with jihadist groups, um, which has helped to maintain certain ceasefires And since the coup, um, it's not clear yet if uh, violence is going to increase in Niger uh, post the coup, but um, we have seen some concerning attacks in the Tilibari region where there were were talks that held held back violence um, and now might not any longer if those talks don't continue. Mm. And by Wagner, you mean the Russian mercenary group, which we're going to talk about a little bit more after the break. So Sarah Harrison and Joseph Sani, stay with me for another minute or so. We'll be back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair. 
a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. We're speaking today with Sarah Harrison. She's a senior analyst at the International Crisis Group and with Joseph Sani. He's vice president of the Africa Center at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Um, I don't want to fully let go the uh, the triggering effect of the fall of Libya when it comes to the coups we've seen across the Sahel here. I don't want to fully let go of that. I, I acknowledge what, what Dr. Sani said a few minutes ago, that it's not the sole cause for the the instability we've seen in the region. But it's an interesting one to sort of use as a moment of self-examination for U.S. policy here, right? Because let's not forget our history. There was a NATO coalition, U.S.-backed one, uh, that uh, destabilized Libya. It ended with Muammar Gaddafi being killed on October 20th, 2011. Now, if memory serves, the the follow-up Libyan Libyan government actually asked NATO to remain in country, uh, at least until the end of 2011. But NATO ended its mission there on October 31st, just 11 days after Gaddafi was killed. My sense is that left the nascent Libyan government there to founder, and in fact, the country is still unstable more than a decade later. And it seems like. In part, Niger and the rest of the Sahel continues to pay the price for that. So, Sarah, just your take on the long-term impacts of NATO and the United States is, uh, in fact, destabilizing actions in parts of Africa. Yeah, I think it's fair to say the U.S. is um, good at going to war, not necessarily getting out of it or planning for the aftermath. Um, President Obama said that his uh, his administration not preparing for uh, the aftermath of the 2011 um, uh, no-fly zone that was imposed over Libya uh, was the worst foreign policy uh, failure of his of his tenure as president. Um, and and what we've seen from that, as as we've described already, is that. Uh, it, it created a, a, a vacuum uh, for arms and, and other types of weapons to flow into the Sahel um, and fuel the jihadi groups that are there now. Um, and then the U.S. turned to the Sahel to, you know, arm and uh, train and 
uh, and be present in um, to tr try to fight these groups, um, mostly in, at, at first, and uh, you know, when France um, was the first to lead the operation in 2013 in Mali, uh, mm -hmm. because there was uh, an uprising there, uh, which turned into this long, uh, much broader um, decades-long decade-long operation, uh, Operation Barkhane from uh, from France that U.S. helped support. Um, but over that decade, so if we look, you know, we were talking about the uh, statistics of the decade of violence in the Sahel, and you and you brought up the number of the 2016 to 2022 fatalities that have increased by 3,000 uh, percent. The U.S. has increased its military assistance and security assistance in the Sahel over that time, but has not, you know, there has not been a corresponding uh, decline in violence, and 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 it's, you know, it's not. It's not necessarily because the U.S. has provided security assistance, but I think, um, like you're describing with Libya, the U.S. really needs to uh, reassess its policy there and determine whether it should have been, like Dr. Sani said, investing more in governance because what yeah. really plagues the Sahel is is poor governance. Yeah, and I think it, it was you who said uh, in a conversation with our with our producer that if you really want to know what U.S. policy is versus what's being said, follow the money. And we see a lot of the money going to security aid. Now, Ms. Joseph Sani... <sighs> There's also, I mean, we could spend the entire hour talking about, again, France's history in the region, but there are French interests and uh, actions which are part of this. Uh, Sarah mentioned Russia and the Wagner Group, which would seemingly only, you know, even as it's committing human rights atrocities, benefit from a destabilized Sahel in terms of uh, its relationship with crime syndicates. And then there's also China, right? Because I understand that Niger is one of the main sources of uranium for China. In fact, there's been a lot of China development money uh, in the country. Are U.S., Russia, China, are their interests divergent here when it comes to uh, Niger? Um, so I think it's important. First of all, uh, I agree with Sarah uh, that President Bazoum did all the writing. So he had a multi-pronged approach, development, security, and then peace-building approach to the situation in his country. So he did all the writing. That's why it's so shocking to see this coup. Coming to the great power competition, so to speak, or the interests of great power in the region, I think, uh, first of all, there is... Um, I, the, 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 there is interest. Uh, the uranium is a key resource. I mean, Niger produces about, depending on the estimate, 7% to 5% of the world uranium uh, that they have. So there is interest in that, particularly as we are thinking of, uh, uh, we have the energy crisis. The, the, there will be competition, uh, that for sure. Now, the question is, what will be the consequence of that competition in the context of chaos and who will win in that competition. Mm -hmm. As I said before, Russia is more equipped to benefit from chaos than China, than the United States. So they have tools such as Wagner's mercenary groups, etc., to take advantage of the chaos. That's why I'm not surprised that uh, in Russia-led media, this coup is being already weaponized mm -hmm. to, pu to, to push to push out uh, an anti-French or Western sentiment. So, yeah, well, you know, it, 
suddenly occurs to me that uh, I've fallen into a common trap that we fall into here in the West, and that is looking at what's happening uh, in Africa through the lens of this great power (laughs) competition, um, which then, whether deliberately or accidentally, treats the African nations themselves as just a pawn in games played by by other countries, which is, of course, not what those nations, uh, how they, that's not how they want to be t- treated. So I, I'm just catching myself and falling in that, uh, uh, that well-worn trap, unfortunately. So we're going to come back to what, uh, what Niger itself and the Nigerian people uh, want uh, for their futures in a moment. But Joseph and Sarah, if you could just stay with me for a minute, we wanted to get um, a, a, a perspective from an African in another uh, nearby country. And we spoke to Kwesi Aning. He's in Ghana's capital of Accra, and he's a professor at the Kofi Annan International Peacekeeping Training Center. And here's how the coup in Niger looks from his perspective. Niger is known as the frying pan of West Africa. Anything that happens in Niger affects multiple countries because it shares international boundaries with seven countries. Niger is also seen as the last bastion before violent extremists get to the coastal states. So Niger is pretty important in several instances. The Gulf of Guinea coast transports massive amounts of oil to continental United States and also to Europe. So having proper government control over the Gulf of Guinea states, that is made up of 26 countries, is extremely crucial. Professor Arning says that he actually wasn't surprised by the coup. He said it was inevitable because of one crucial mistake he believes was made by President Bazoum. One of the things that we need to understand in relation to African politics, particularly West African politics, is the role of France in controlling these countries that supposedly are independent. Because the French across Central West Africa and the Sahel are detested because of their history in these countries. Repressive, exploitative, disrespectful of human rights, and consistently ensuring that the humanity of the citizens of these countries are not respected. So when President Bazoum invited the French, the generality of the people in West Africa wondered, why do you want to take this risk? So it didn't come to me as a surprise at all. I knew it would happen, but I wasn't sure what would trigger is but Anning says a purely military response, as we've heard from Joseph Sani, um, he agrees with Sani on this point, I should be clear, that a purely military response is inadequate to meet the threat of jihadi terrorism across the Sahel. In the past three years, there have been 5,300 terror-related attacks, leading to 16,000 lives being lost. Now, when you compare these figures to road traffic accidents, then they pale totally. So whilst terrorism and our need to respond and to degrade terrorist groups are important, for most Africans, it's about bread and butter issues. Good roads, 
good hospitals, good schools, jobs, training. So we need a combination of both the military and the developmental interventions. That is the way to be able to degrade these groups. Again, he sees the threat of jihadist terrorism as very real in the Sahel. But he also thinks countries like Niger sometimes play up the threat to the Gulf of Guinea nations because it means more Western aid. I've just traveled from Togo, from Benin, the southern parts of Burkina Faso, and the northern parts of Ghana, and just written a major report for the United Nations. I didn't see this recruitment drive. I didn't see a fear in the communities in which I traveled. People's concerns were about whether they could grow vegetables all the year round, whether they could herd their cattle, whether they could farm their maize and their millet. So it looks to me as if there is a narrative about this expansion that we need to disaggregate much better. That was Kwesi Aning, professor at the Kofi Annan International Peacekeeping Training Center in Accra in Ghana. Joseph Sani, what's your response to what you said? I think I, I agree with him, even though the comparison between the, the, fatal, the ter- terrorist fatalities and the road is a little bit, uh, as we say, comparison is not reason, because... Uh, Road accidents are not geocentric, so they, they, they are not going out there to conquer territories and dictate laws and further abuses. So, but overall, yes, he has a point. I think we have to be careful to prioritize security only, because again, even when people mention Libya, Boko Haram did not wait for Libya to mm-hmm. collapse to mm-hmm. attack Nigeria. Right. So they are uh, the tu- the Tuareg rebellion in Mali. They not wait for Libya. There was already a rebellion in Mali. So again, uh, we have to look at it from a governance and insufficient developmental response. The inability of the state to respond to citizen needs. The inability of leaders to put forward a genuine democratic agenda that respects human rights. So we have to look at it from that element, not only security alone. Okay. And, yes. If I can just jump in here, because we only have a few minutes left. You, you've, you've set it up for a, a perfect pivot to what needs to happen now. And Sarah, let me turn to you, because it's been said over and over again this hour that, you know, obviously there's the immediate urgency of um, the Nigerian coup at the moment and that a diplomatic solution is, is far... Um, preferable to war, but as Joseph Sani said earlier, military intervention shouldn't necessarily be taken off the table. Okay, we'll see how that will unfold in the coming weeks and months. But longer term, is this the wake-up call that the United States needed to really reassess um, how it's uh, spending its money or its policy in Africa, but particularly in the Sahel? Because as you mentioned earlier, a hundred million dollars for a military base in Niger and millions more dollar dollars every year to support the people and equipment in that base and other, you know, vast sums of money for security. It sounds like for long-term security in Niger, in the Sahel, and therefore for the United States, that money could be better used for strengthening the very democratic institutions that Joseph Sani has been talking about. 
Yeah, a couple of things here. Um, so one, I think U.S. officials who work the file would push back a little bit on um, saying that the U.S. has invested so heavily in security assistance and not other areas. It has invested greatly in agricultural reforms. Niger is an agricultural economy, so that's really key to helping build the economy. Um, it invests a lot of money in humanitarian aid. That is emergency assistance. It's not you know, more of the long-term sustainable assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do push back a bit on that narrative, even though there is so much money that is invested in security assistance. I think this is definitely a wake-up call for the U.S. I think they recognize that. I've talked to Biden administration officials who say that they are meeting at the highest levels. Uh, the cabinet is meeting on this issue. And I think there's a lot of reflection happening to determine what is the way ahead because their security relationships are imploding across the Sahel mm-hmm. um, in Mali and Burkina and now in Niger and in Guinea. In Guinea, the coup actually was occurring in the midst of a U.S. security training. Of, uh, U.S. military forces were there training uh, the forces uh, right as they were planning to leave and conduct the coup. So I, I, it should have been a wake-up call before, I think, Magna, but um, now it definitely is. And I think that uh, crisis group uh, where I work uh, just had a really great briefing put out on what the Ivory Coast is doing. And it's this mix of security assistance and socioeconomic reforms that are really helping to boost the lives of the youth in the northern region that uh, uh, is uh, on the border with Burkina Faso. And that kind of approach of of really integrating um, economic reforms and governance reforms is going to be really Mm. key to stability in the Sahel. And so any partner that, you know, partners with these countries moving forward is going to have to remember that. Yeah. Well, Joseph Sani, I'm going to give you the last 20 seconds here, I'm afraid. You have mentioned that there's also perhaps a hidden asset that we have in the African diaspora here. Can you just briefly tell us what you're talking about? Yes, I think we have something that other our competitors or other countries do not have. It is a vibrant diaspora, whether it is in business, diplomacy, even religion. Uh, so I think we, in addition to our diversity, I think uh, leveraging our diaspora could make a difference in this part of the world. Uh, whether uh, business, small businesses engaging with the diaspora in the United States and connecting them uh, yeah. with the continent will be an asset that uh, will serve us well. Well, Joseph Sani, Vice President of the Africa Center at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and Sarah Harrison, Senior Analyst at the International Crisis Group, I thank you both very much. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.